case, but it doesn't always happen. Midweek, I always have good intentions to be up and out on my run by six o'clock in the morning so that I'm back in time to help get the kids up and ready for school. But I have noticed something over the last couple of weeks. Getting out of bed in the morning has become harder and harder. Maybe that's become your life experience over recent weeks too. Well, I am blessed, of course. I'm blessed with an alarm clock which has infinite patience with me. And it tries to wake me up over and over and over and again using the snooze function. But here's confession time. There have been a few occasions recently when I've skipped my morning run and I've stayed in bed in the warmth. I know, absolutely shameful. Well, to appease my guilt, I read an article this week that was explaining that getting up and waking up is one of the hardest and the most demanding things that our bodies ever has to do. Of course, if you have teenagers, you'll know this to be true. It's literally like waking the dead, isn't it? Our heart has to begin pumping enough blood to wake up our brains from the deep sleep that it's just been in. Our lungs have to start taking in even more oxygen to increase our breathing so that we'll be sustained for the day. And then apparently there's an area of the brain called the SCN which has to release loads of cortisol and other hormones to get us up and running. All of this leads me to agree with the psalmist in Psalm 139 that our bodies really are some of the most incredible masterpieces created by God himself. It really is a miracle, isn't it, that all of the different parts hold together and work together, especially first thing in the morning. Well, what I've discovered in my now three decades living as a Christian is this. What is true in the physical is often true in the spiritual. Do you know what I mean? I wonder if you ever find yourself in a state where you are spiritually sleeping and in need of what we might call an awakening. You know, those seasons, sometimes longer than a season, if we're really honest, when it doesn't matter how hard we try, we just can't do, uh, do that which it takes to get out of a spiritual slumber. You're pressing, if you like, the spiritual snooze button repeatedly on your spiritual alarm clock. These are those times when praying is particularly hard. These are the times when opening your Bible, let alone reading it, becomes a rare event. These are the times when you choose Netflix instead of the online church as it's going out live on a Sunday morning. These are the times when God feels permanently distant. Well, last weekend, Kate kicked off our sermon series, which we've called Dangerous Prayers. These are the prayers which, if we're willing to pray them, might just radically change the course and the nature of our walk with God. And today's prayer is the prayer, Lord, awaken me, awaken me. In other words, Lord, would you wake me up? Lord, would you make me alive for you? Lord, would you give me a new spiritual fire that I've not had before? In the Old Testament of the Bible, the first half of the Bible before the coming of Jesus, we find 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And within 2 Chronicles chapter 7, there's this incredible account of how Solomon has built the temple and then dedicates that temple to God in Jerusalem. It really is an epic story, and I'd encourage you to read the chapters leading up to it and beyond it. And in the story, the people of God kneel in awe as fire falls from heaven and God's glory comes and fills the temple. Wow, what a moment to have been a part of. This is one of those heaven meets earth moments, a mountaintop experience for God's people. What can possibly be better than this moment? 
Maybe you can think of a similar moment in your own life when we've gathered together for worship or maybe when you've been to a Christian festival or big event. Those moments when you've never felt closer to God. Well, sorry if you're a vegan, God's people in the story clearly were not because we read in the scriptures that they sacrificed thousands of cattle and sheep and goats in response to all that God was doing here. Musicians sang and they praised God with their instruments. The presence of God in this moment is tangible. And I can only put myself in the shoes of God's people and think to myself, they must have thought that they fully arrived in their relationship with God. But of course, the story doesn't end there. It never does end on the mountaintop. We have to come back to the valleys. In the aftermath of this joy-filled occasion, the Lord Yahweh appears to Solomon at night. And as he appears, he answers the prayers of his people with a combination of both promises and warnings. Promises and warnings. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. If you haven't, you can click the Bible button on our online app if you're using it. This is one of these passages that ought to be highlighted in your Bible. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I'm going to read from verses 11 to 16. It says this, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no more rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among the people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this table so that my name uh, may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. So God said, if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, if they will pray, if they will seek my face, if they'll turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. What a great promise. That's the mountaintop, but then we come to the valleys because just a few verses later in verse 19, God says this, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land and I will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. This temple will become a heap of rubble. Now, no, no doubt, as Solomon heard all of this, he would have heard this as a reiteration of Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God clearly spells out to Moses that there are rewards for obedience, but two, there are consequences for disobedience. We see this reward versus consequences equation, equation under the law play out most obviously in the book of Judges. If ever you've read the book of Judges, you'll know there's a familiar pattern there. Israel would fall into sin. God would send another nation to judge them. Israel would then repent and call on the name of the Lord. And then the Lord would, um, then they'd muck up again. The Lord would raise up another judge to deliver them. They'd serve the Lord for a while and then they'd fall back into sin again. And so the cycle would continue and go on and on. I wonder if that cycle sounds a bit familiar, maybe for some of us, for seasons in our walk with God. 
those times when we spiritually sleep up, uh, asleep, and then we get woken up, and then we fall asleep, and then we wake up, and we fall asleep, and so the cycle goes on. As God's people discovered in Solomon's day, and as God's people have discovered ever since, God longs for us to be permanently and intimately relating with him. The sleep-awake, sleep-awake cycle really doesn't work in a relationship with God. Now, to be clear about the context here, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, were words that were spoken when the old covenant that was made with Moses in Deuteronomy 28 was that thing that governed God's relationship with his people. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God is simply reminding Solomon about this historic agreement that was made with Moses. In context, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verse 14 is actually a promise for ancient Israel. It's perhaps even a promise for modern day Israel, that if they'll repent, that if they'll turn to the Lord, then the Lord will come and he will rescue them. So when Christians, as those of us who are living under the new covenant that's been made with Christ, when we quote this scripture, we've got to be very careful indeed not to rip it out of its historical context and make it say all sorts of things about revival in the UK or in the West. These words are not a direct promise for ourselves, but two, we shouldn't ignore the powerful message that these words contain for all generations. It contains a strong challenge to confess and to forsake our sin so that they won't hinder our walk with God or even become a stumbling block to our non-Christian friends or family or neighbours. And this is a challenge which is repeated in the New Testament. It's a challenge to be spiritually alive and not to be spiritually asleep. Think of words like Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Let us throw off everything. Everything, says the writer of the Hebrews, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's a call to walk in the light of Jesus, not to sleep in the darkness of our sin. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 is an if-then scripture. Now, you'll find these scattered throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. If you do this, then I'll do that. If you don't do this, then I will blank. It sounds strangely like the way I spend most of my life parenting my children. Yes, there are rewards, but two, there are consequences for having responsibilities and receiving rewards. God's original promise to Moses was conditional. It required a response, if then. What God says to Moses and then he repeats to Solomon, of course, is perfectly reasonable. It wasn't enough to simply take God's gift to enjoy the benefits of it and offer absolutely nothing back to, to God in response to his compassion and his grace. And the same is true for us as followers of Christ. We are guaranteed personal salvation as a gift that comes from God if only we'll accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. In that sense, this gift is unconditional. Romans verse 8, chapter 1. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. But as followers of Christ, we're also guaranteed that God will use us to accomplish his purposes, whatever they may be. 
But in order for God to do that, we need to make ourselves available to him, not simply grab the gift of salvation that he gives to us. Two repeated throughout the scriptures is this call to live a holy life, to to live a life that's seeking after God, to, to pray, to share the gospel, knowing that all those who receive it and accept it will themselves be saved. Come to faith in Christ, yes, but don't let that become the end of your faith journey. It's very much a beginning. If you accept the gift, then there's an expectation that you'll delight in the gift. Not so much a condition, but definitely an expectation that we will be those having received the gift that will fan that gift into fire, um, that flame into fire and even share it. Now, for that to happen, we simply can't just sleepwalk our way through life, spiritually speaking. We need to be awake. We need to be alive to what God is doing in us and through us and wants to do. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 breaks up very nicely into three sections, which are sandwiched between the if and the end uh, and, the, and the then. The filling of the if-then sandwich is who, what, and afterward. Who? My people. That's who. What a privilege. What a privilege to be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. That is who we are if we are in Christ Jesus. We're able to say that we are God's people. He's able to say, my people. But there's another who as well. The writer goes on to say, my people who are called by my name, my people who are called by my name. If we wear the name tag of Jesus on our chest, then we're called to seek to bear his likeness and word in word and in deed. We've been thinking a bit about that in Theology Condensed on a Sunday evening. The DNA of Jesus should be reflected in our character if we've come to know him. Next in the if-then sandwich is what. What will my people called by my name do? They will humble themselves and pray. Whenever we come to God in prayer, we're humbly acknowledging our reliance on God's grace. Whenever we pray, we're coming to God humbly saying, do you know what? My human brains, my brawn, my ingenuity, all of my human resources simply aren't enough. We'll come to God in humility and prayer. But there's another what as well. What will these called people do? Well, they will seek after my face, it says. They'll seek after the face of God. In any healthy relationship or in any close friendship, we will know one another's facial expressions. Maybe we'll enjoy the twinkle in our loved one's eyes and they can communicate to us even with the slightest raise of an eyebrow. And I wonder how well do you know the face of God? How much are you seeking after the face of God so that we can discover his will for our lives? You know, here's the thing. We won't discover his face if we are sleepwalking through our Christian lives. With our eyes closed, we won't see the face of God. But there's another what as well. What else should these people called by God do? It says that they should turn from their wicked ways. We know, don't we, that coming to faith requires repentance. But this isn't just a once in a lifetime event, important as it is that we do that in the first place to receive salvation. But also we ought to be repenting and turning on a daily basis. We ought to be seeking to keep a very short account of our sin with God in the sure knowledge that God's grace will be sufficient for us. 
Being awake in Jesus is to live intentionally, having once turned 180 degrees, but also still being determined to continue facing towards the things of God. Walking away from those things that historically may have sought to trip us up. And then next in the if-then sandwich comes some incredible promises. We have the who, we have the what, and then we have afterwards, which is where we find the promises. We'll be a people who are humbled. We'll be a people who are praying, seeking, repenting. And afterwards, it says, I will hear from heaven. In saying this, God is saying, I'm not a God who is aloof and far away, but I'm a God who's close and who is available. I'm a God who cares. I'm a God who intervenes. I'm a God who listens. God says that we humble ourselves, we pray, we seek, we repent, and he will hear us from heaven. But there's another afterwards as well. He says, I will forgive their sin. Now, we know in the, the light of the New Testament that we understand the price that God paid for us for our forgiveness. Jesus purchased our forgiveness at the cross. He affirmed it in his resurrection and he sealed it by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus offers this gift freely to all who believe and who repent. God is a God who delights in forgiving our sins when we've come to faith in Jesus, not just as a once off event, but as an ongoing event. And then there's a third afterwards. God says, if my people will humble themselves, if they'll seek, if they'll pray to me, if they'll repent, I will heal their land. Ancient Israel was desperately in need of God's healing, as we were reflecting in uh, Theology Condensed last Sunday evening. But of course, so do all the nations of the 21st century also need healing. If we want to see revival in our land, then prayers based on 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, I think are a really good place to start. But you'll notice that it starts with us and our personal response to God. In a sense, what we discover from here is how on earth will the world wake up to Jesus if we as a church are going around sleepwalking? If these promises are to be ours, then we need to ensure that we're not spiritually asleep. We need to be praying daily, Jesus, awaken me. Jesus, don't let me fall asleep. A.W. Tozer once wrote a very provocative quote, and he said this, Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him, they prayed, they wrestled, they sought him day and night, in season and out of season. And when they found him, the finding was all the more sweeter for the long seeking. You see, these holy men and women that Tozer spoke of were awake, they weren't asleep. Oh, that this would be how people describe my walk with Jesus. It sounds good, doesn't it? In 2 Chronicles, we see that God was calling his people to humble themselves, to pray, to walk with God personally, to seek God's face and to repent. And then they would experience spiritual healing personally, but to revival in their land. As I finish, I want to have a really quick look into the pages of the New Testament at a really intriguing story that's captured in Acts chapter 19. The context here is that the Apostle Paul has just arrived in Ephesus and he's gone there to preach the gospel. In fact, he's gone to plant a church. But the first thing that happens is an encounter with 12 men who were almost Christians. 
His conversation with them actually nudges them over the line to full faith in Christ. Now, in Acts 19, there are about 20 sermons, and I don't have time even for one of them. For example, we could debate whether or not these 12 men in verses 1 to 5 actually were Christians at the point when Paul met them. There's a sermon about the gift of tongues and prophecy in verses 6 to 7. There's a message about Paul who, after two years of, or continued two years of teaching despite opposition in verses 8 to 10. There are miracles, there are healings, there are exorcisms. There's, there's even a man running away naked in verses 11 to 16. There are plenty of sermons. There's a lot to, that could be said. But for now, I simply want to leave you with three really brief thoughts from verses 17 to 20. These verses seem to have something to teach us about our dangerous prayer, Lord, awaken me. And these are things that resonate with 2 Chronicles chapter 7. So if you have a, a Bible, I'm reading now from verse 19, uh, from chapter 19, from verse 17. And it says this. When this became known, that's the miracles. So the Jews and the Greeks lived in, in Ephesus. They were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord was held in high honor. In other words, people worshipped. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In order to become and to stay spiritually awake, we need firstly to be a people who worship freely. This is in verse 17. After seeing how good God was through Paul's ministry, we see in verse 17 that everyone worshipped and everyone honoured God enthusiastically. The same thing is happening in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. To become and to stay spiritually awake, we need to be a people who worship God enthusiastically. Now, that's not to say that our praise will always manifest itself in a raucous type of worship. Sometimes the hottest fires aren't the ones with the largest flames. For some people, they will be so overcome with the love of Jesus that it will manifest itself in jumping and shouting and raising of hands. But for others, they will worship enthusiastically by falling to their knees and perhaps finding themselves in tears and even weeping quietly. I guess my point is this, when we see Jesus in all of his beauty, then we'll be worshipped, uh, moved to worship him, not just on Sundays and not just in singing, but with the whole of our lives, the whole of the time. There's a difference, isn't there, between taking up Jesus and being taken up by Jesus. You can have all the appreciation you like in the world for Jesus without having any affection for him. But God isn't after mere appreciation. He longs for us to pursue affection. And that's why in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 to 9, Jesus says, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. In essence, he's saying their worship is a complete farce. We need to have Jesus on our lips and on our hearts. So let's not allow anything to keep us from freely worshipping God, because when we do, we'll stay spiritually awake. The second we stop worshipping is the second our hearts will start wondering. And then second in Acts chapter 19, verse 18 this time, we see that the people confess their sin regularly. Again, we see that call, don't we, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 
The verb tenses here indicate that the people kept coming and they kept confessing. They kept on sharing. There's this ongoing confessing and walking free cycle that's going on in the people here. Whenever they discovered something wasn't quite lining up with uh, how they should be living, they knew only one thing to do, and that was to confess it and then to be free from it and to walk away in that freedom. So secondly, the people confess their sin regularly. And then thirdly and finally, when we get to verse 19 of Acts chapter 19, these spiritually awake people abandoned idols fully. Now, an idol is anything that you prioritise above God. It's that one thing that you feel like you can't live without, even if you could. In Ephesus, Ephesus, we read here in Acts that the problem was witchcraft and all sorts of other evil and occultic practices. So what did they do? They burned all of their witchcraft books. Now, it's estimated that those books today would be worth about four million pounds, and they burned them. These books were worth a fortune, and they were the magician's livelihood. How now would these guys make their living? What would their community think? On top of all of that, Ephesus was a place where the dark arts and, and dark magic was just the normal. It was just fine to have those books for everybody else. But for these people who came to faith, they realized they couldn't just justify keeping these idols, but they needed to get rid of them. And we saw the same response in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You see, it's impossible to embrace the future God has for you until you walk away from those things that trapped you in the past. So in short, if it's not Jesus, get rid of it. If it doesn't honour Jesus, turn your back on it. If it's not Jesus, have nothing to do with it. Now, of course, our prayer today is, Lord, awaken me. And you know, the truth is, I cannot be awakened in my own strength. And we need to pray, pray alongside this prayer, Lord, awaken me. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Fill me afresh, maybe even for the first time with your spirit, so that I'll know the power and the encouragement and the conviction that I need to live fully for you. And as I close, I simply want to lead us in a prayer this morning that invites the Holy Spirit to come, maybe for the first time or afresh into our lives to fill us so that we'll know the strength that we need to pray this prayer, Lord, awaken me, change me, transform me more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Let's pray together. If my people who are called by my name, Lord, what a privilege. What a privilege it is to be called your people a people who are called by your incredible name, by the God who is gracious and compassionate, by the God who is all loving. If my people will humble themselves and they'll pray and they seek after God's face and they repent, Lord, we just come before you this morning. And Lord, we pray, keep us humble. Keep us a people who are praying and seeking after your face. Keep us a people who are continually and regularly coming to you in repentance. Lord, thank you for the if, then there's a then promise that you'll hear, that you'll give forgiveness and that you'll bring healing. And Lord, our prayer for ourselves this morning is that you would awaken us, awaken us, stir us up, shake us up, keep us alive in you. And Lord, this morning, we just hold out our hands ready to receive the gift that you're able to give. 
And for some of us, the gift that we need actually is for the first time to receive Christ as Lord and Saviour. I want to encourage you this morning, just pray a really simple prayer. I accept you to be my Lord and Saviour. I'm trusting you for the forgiveness of my sin. I'm seeking your face and I receive the gift that you give. By praying that really short prayer, the promise is that God by his spirit will come to live within us and begin that work of transformation into the likeness of Jesus. If only we'll continue walking with him. But maybe for others of us this morning, actually, we simply need to receive the gift where, in a sense, God wakes us up afresh. And Lord, I want to pray now that, Holy Spirit, you would come. Make us alive in Christ Jesus. Activate the gifts within us. Nurture the fruit of your spirit within us. That we would become more like Jesus in the way we live, but too in the way we exercise ministry and life and witness for him. Lord, this morning we receive the gift of your spirit. Do a work of transformation within us. Where we're sleeping, would we hear the alarm clock to wake us up and to walk into new life? Just take a moment of stillness for yourself. Ask yourself for a moment, am I worshipping freely always? Am I confessing sin regularly? Maybe there's even some sin that needs to be confessed right now in the stillness. Have I abandoned idols fully, those things that would seek to trip me up from my past? Have they gone? Maybe there's a need to burn them to do something with them. Lord, in the stillness, speak to us, I pray. Lord, thank you that you hear our prayers and you delight in responding to them. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, nought be all else to me, save that thou art.